Well, good morning. My name is David. It's a pleasure to be able to welcome you this morning to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We're glad that you can join us today. And if you're a visitor or here for the first time, a special welcome to you. Um, We hope you'll feel at home here and experience and be blessed in the presence of God in this time of worship. We're going to be continuing to study the story of Exodus and how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And our pastor, Duncan Ryan, will be bringing a message from Exodus 4 later in the service. Um, It's an amazing and challenging story. And of course, it points to why we're here today. Because God ultimately provides the final rescue plan through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, whom by his work on the cross breaks our chains of slavery. And it's a form of slavery which is alive and well today, and our slavery to sin. And from Romans 6, we know this, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Exodus chapter 4 from verses 18 through to 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met with him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he said, So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Amen. Duncan. Thank you. Um, Let me add my welcome. Um, Thank you for coming to be with us today. Um, Just to add to one or two things to to what Dave has already mentioned, I want to highlight for church members especially that we have our half-yearly general meeting coming up uh, a week tomorrow. That's the 22nd of May. Um, You will have received 
probably multiple emails by now from me about um, what we're planning to do in that meeting. We're going to be talking about some important things. I mean, why else would we have a members meeting other than to talk about important things? So if you're able to come, uh, please do set aside that time and um, turn with me back to Exodus chapter 4. And let's just take a brief moment to ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Our Father, we we come to these verses, uh, and perhaps even at first reading, confusing verses for us, but we come to these verses convinced that this is Your Word, and that as we hear these words, we hear Your voice. And so we pray that it is that voice we would hear. You would, we pray that you would open deaf ears, open blind eyes, soften hard hearts, and lead us to Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. It is our um, conviction in this church that um, all of God's Word is always relevant all the time. And in working through a book like Exodus, we want to, as far as we can, um, work through all of it. And uh, I'm not saying we're going to get right through to chapter 40 without taking a break, but certainly having started in chapter 1, it makes sense to go through all of it. And we even come to difficult portions of Scripture like this. Um, But don't be put off by that. We believe God has a lot to teach us from, and sometimes especially from, the most difficult parts of Scripture. Now, I am not a hiker. I have never bagged a Monroe, and in all honesty, I have set no ambitions to do so. Now, I could use the excuse, couldn't I, that, um, well, the reason why not is because it's dangerous. But the truth is, that kind of activity is typically only dangerous to those who are ill-prepared. The story is retold multiple times a year, isn't it? And I suppose now, as we see the weather improve, more folks are going to head for the hills, and we'll hear that story again. The story of someone who had to be rescued from the Cairngorms. Maybe they got lost without a compass Maybe the weather turned nasty and suddenly flip-flops and a t-shirt didn't seem like such a good idea. And those news stories, when they come to us, they always, always end like this. The mountain rescue team are calling on hillgoers to ensure they are properly equipped. Well, if you think that you need to be equipped to hike up Loch Nagar, What would be the dangers of not being equipped when you set about serving God? How dangerous a thing would that be? We must not be caught out trying to find our way serving God ill-equipped. Well, as I've said, we're reading through the book of Exodus, which is the story of how God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Central to God's plan for this was a man named Moses. Moses was born in Egypt, and even though the king of Egypt had decreed that all the Israelite baby boys should be drowned in the River Nile, Moses was delivered from the river 
by Pharaoh's daughter, no less. And he was raised as a prince in Pharaoh's households. And yet he knew his heritage. He knew that he wasn't an Egyptian, and he chose to identify with his people, which meant he had to leave Egypt. And then 40 years later, at the age of 80, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And we spent a few weeks walking through that encounter where God commits to rescue His people and tells Moses that He is the one who will go to Pharaoh and demand the release of the Israelites. Moses is not thrilled at the idea and raises a series of reasons and excuses as to why he really isn't the man for the job. But God very patiently deals with every one of Moses' objections, allowing Moses to understand who God is and promising to be with him. And so when we come to this part, um, Exodus 4, verse 18, Moses is almost ready to go, almost These verses are really like final preparations before Moses returns to Egypt. And I don't know if you spotted this, but the pace of the storytelling picks up big time here. Having spent a chapter and a half simply at the burning bush, listening to God and Moses speak, here we have 14 verses that jump through seven specific scenes in Moses' final preparations to go. And they're all important, for this is God equipping God's servant. I think it's hard to get away from it in this passage. The thing that dominates these scenes is the Word of God. With the exception of the first scene where Moses goes to his father-in-law and says, please, can I have permission to to go to Egypt? I'm no longer going to be looking after your flocks. Can Can I head to Egypt to see if my brothers are still alive? Throughout all the, all the other scenes, all six of them, the words of God are central. And you see that in a few different ways. The most obvious is where God speaks. So, look at verse 19, the Lord said to Moses. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron. And the other example is where God's words are declared. So, then you've got God speaking, and then you've got God's words being declared by others. So, verse 22, God says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord. And then verse 30, in Egypt, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken. You can't can't get away from this in this fast-paced portion of Exodus 4. And in terms of this final stretch of Moses' equipping for the task, we're seeing, hopefully, that God's servant needs… God's Word. God's servant needs God's Word. So, let's stick with those two ways that the Word of God comes to the fore. Moses needs God's Word because he needs the instruction and the promise of God. That's what he needs, first of all. He needs to hear God's words 
to receive his instructions and to receive the promises of God. So, God offers Moses a word of assurance in verse 19. Moses didn't want to go back to Egypt because 40 years previously there had been a price put on his head. But God speaks and says to Moses, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Pretty much this is God saying, Moses, you can go. It is safe for you to go there. And surely without this word from God, I don't imagine Moses would have been so quick to hitch his wife and his sons to his donkeys. That's what he does in response, isn't it? He's given this assurance by God that it is safe to go, and he puts his whole family on the line, trusting God's word. Unless the Lord speaks to Aaron in verse 27, then Aaron will have no idea to travel into the wilderness to Mount Horeb to meet his brother Moses. And in fact, the details of what God says, um, the details of what God says to Moses in verse 21 are words that Moses needs to hear. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. You see, I really want to make this simple point. How can Moses be a faithful servant of God in the task given to him? Well, it's only if God tells him what he is to do. He really does need the Word of God. Go into Pharaoh and tell him. Notice also what God gives Moses a sense of what to expect. Pharaoh's heart will harden. And we're going to spend some time on that in future weeks. But there's an expectation here. Moses, you're going to go in, you're going to say these words to Pharaoh, and his heart will be hardened. Here's what to do, here's what to expect. There's another layer on this. God's servant needs God's Word if they're to understand who they are. Let me show you this. This, this, this is the curse of our age, I suppose, isn't it? People, people really today don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. On one level, um, we are taught to think that um, we are simply the results of um, accidents of chemistry, um, and that's how we've ended up where we are, and that's what we are, heading aimlessly through a purposeless universe and all that sort of stuff. On another level, we think that we are nothing more than the sum of our desires and passions. And when those desires and passions fail to live up to what they've been billed as, then it's very easy for us to think that there's not much to us at all. And for the Israelites in Egypt, who did they think they were? Well, they thought they were the property of Pharaoh, his slaves, forgotten by God, there to build cities and then to die. But with Moses is coming a different message to the land of Egypt. Verse 22, Moses is going to declare this, thus says the Lord, this is what God says, 
Israel is my firstborn son. They belong to God. They don't belong to Pharaoh. They are loved by God, not forgotten by Him. They are His firstborn son. They are due an inheritance from God. And God will deal severely with those who would harm them, and that's what the message will be to Pharaoh. If you refuse to let my firstborn son go, I will kill your firstborn son. They belong to God, and He loves them. And we need to take this whole equipping that we're thinking of here of how we need, how God's servant needs the Word of God if he's to know how to honor God, if he's to know who he is. You know, the Bible tells us who we are. Now, we are not Israelites. The Bible has much to tell us of how we are not chemical accidents, but we are, as human beings, images of God. We have not been made to be defined by our passions and desires, but made to know God and to worship God. The Bible tells us that even though that's what we have been made to be, yet we are not those things perfectly. We are sinners who need to be forgiven. And to each of us, the offer of forgiveness and restoration to God comes through Jesus Christ. And for all then who belong to Jesus, God's Word tells you this is who you are. You are joined to Jesus Christ. You are a joint heir of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are loved by God. You have a future with God. And we could go on and on. We need God's Word to tell us who we are. But there's more here, because the word that comes to Moses and to Aaron is a word that is also to be passed on. God gives the message that is to be relayed, um, and we've touched on this, verse 22, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. Moses needs the Word of God because it is the only authority that he has. He's not being told to go into Egypt and be a resourceful problem solver. He is to go there and to say what the Lord says, to do what the Lord says to do. And so, when Moses meets Aaron in verse 28, he told him all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak. When Aaron and Moses meet the elders of the Israelites, verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Where would these guys have been without the Word of God? If Moses is going to be God's servant, then he needs this equipping. There's no other way for him to fulfill God's mission, right? This is God's rescue mission, and so God is determining how He's going to proceed. And I don't think we can speak about this too much. 
These verses are screaming out to us that God is a God who speaks, not a silent God who does not want us to hear Him or understand Him. He is a God who speaks. And the words of God are vital. They are literally vital, life-giving words for human beings. I think about the Lord Jesus Christ and how we read in the Gospels that after His baptism, He was led out into the wilderness for 40 days. We're told that He fasted for that period, and the devil came to tempt Him. While you're hungry, aren't you? Take these rocks and make them into bread. Jesus replies to that temptation to try and, the temptation being to override his human limitations. He replies to it and the the temptations that will follow by quoting from the Word of God. And in that one in particular, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Word of God is vital for human beings. Now, you may have noticed that over the last 60 years, the church in Scotland has shrunk um, disastrously. And not surprisingly, a great many people have ideas about what the church needs to do to revive its fortune. The most popular kind of suggestions at the moment is that the church needs to embrace inclusivity. Uh, It needs to seek out relevance. And um, in my opinion, the church is already the most relevant and ought to be the most inclusive of all groups in the world, as long as we rightly understand what we mean by those terms. But these are actually misguided approaches. And I say that not because we don't have something to learn from them, we do, but because on their own, these kinds of ideas to fix this problem are just, they're just fiddling around the edges, you know? So, I have a proposal for how the church in Scotland would revive its fortunes. The first thing it must do is to recognize that it is not our church, it is not even Scotland's church, It is Jesus Christ's church. There's number one. He bought the church with His own blood, and He has promised to build it until it's complete. And in doing that, He called it my church. So, there's a starting point. It's Jesus' church. From there, then, we must surely listen to Jesus' direction for what the church must do. So, my question to you is, where will we hear His direction? Where will we hear His voice? Because, you know, you read Exodus 4, and there's a bit of a mystery about it, isn't there? Moses seems to casually write down for us, the Lord said to Moses, um, as if it's just an everyday thing, the Lord said to Moses. Well, how did He do that? How did Moses know that God was speaking to him? I don't actually have an answer to that. 
But there is actually no mystery about how God speaks to us today. Not really. Specifically, how Christ speaks to His church to direct His mission of building His church, well, it is in the pages of Scripture. He has given us His Word. It is Scripture's own testimony that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. It's as if it has come straight from His lips to us. And it is by maintaining that commitment to saying that these are God's words to us that the church will find the road to revival. We need to know this book. We need to hear it as Christ's voice and follow wherever it leads. Because what He wants for His church far, far outweighs what you or I might think is good for His church. And that's why we must be a people committed to the Scriptures, to the Bible, to be hungry for it. Because frankly, the stakes are just far too high to leave the solutions for what the church needs to do to our own bright ideas. And that leads me into a second point of equipping in this passage. At the recent coronation, um, there was a particular moment in the ceremony which um, probably for six months I'd been waiting to see if it would survive and be part of the ceremony. And it was, it was included. And it was the moment when the new king was presented with a Bible. The moderator of the Church of Scotland approached the king with a Bible and said, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. What powerful words. But not as powerful as they used to be. Because we would have to say that the power of those words is significantly undermined when the church represented there doesn't act as if the Bible is the lively oracles of God. But at times, instead, here is this book, a really significant inconvenience for us to work around a lot of the time. It doesn't have the same ring, does it? But that is what is being said. And the results of that kind of approach to the Word of God are plain for everyone to see. The church in the 21st century needs to learn to take God at His Word. And that is what Moses is learning here. Moses is finding out that God's servant needs to take God at His Word and all of His Word. And I believe that's the message that comes to us from that unusual episode in verses 24, 25, and 26, where you read it and you think, what is going on here? 
Because there, we're told, on the way out to Egypt, the Lord meets with Moses and, to our great surprise, sought to put Moses to death. Well, the Lord's gone to all this trouble to tell Moses what to do, and here, along the way, He's on the verge of putting Moses to death. And that's not the last surprise in the passage, right? Moses has been struck down, and his wife Zipporah seems to know what is required to deliver Moses from this. So she circumcises their eldest son, touches Moses' feet with the bloody foreskin, and the Lord relents. Well, how do we piece all that together? Well, let's try. In Genesis chapter 17, God gave the sign of circumcision to Abraham, a small surgical procedure to be performed on all the male descendants of Abraham that would act as a sign, as a, as a reminder of God's covenant, His promise with His people. Now, this scene tells us that for some reason, Moses had not circumcised his son, even though it is what God had commanded His people to do, even though Moses had wanted to very much align himself with his Hebrew heritage, with the Israelite people. And it's not because Moses didn't know about it, because you can see that Moses, the, the, the Hebrew, had clearly had some discussions with his wife Zipporah about it because she seemed to know that it was significant enough to do. And you notice again that Moses is delivered by the intervention of one of the women in his life. And she seems to rejoice that her husband is restored to her. I think that's the tone of, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. It's almost as if saying, I feel like I have my husband back, and this time by blood. So, it's this sign of God's covenant that rescues Moses from death. Moses is heading to Egypt. He's following the command of God to do so, but it seems there's this bit missing. Because what, on what basis is God rescuing His people at all? It's on the basis of the promise that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their descendants would be His people. He would be their God. And so, what does it say that Moses had not put the sign of the covenant on his own son. We're seeing here a, a form of selective obedience on Moses' part. And this strange scene was surely in part to teach Moses and in turn to teach us that God's servant needs to take God at His word and all of His word. God's servant needs to take God at His word and all of His word. Simply having God's word or knowing God's word in itself, in it, on its own, it's not worth much if we're not going to do what God says. 
We often forget this when we read these historical narratives in the Old Testament, but you know, Moses wrote down these words for a specific group of people, and it was for the next generation of Israelites who stood on the border of the promised land waiting to go in. And Moses recorded these words, first of all, for them. Forty years later, they're waiting to go in, and these words, what would they, what would they say to them? They would say, you don't get to be selective in how you respond to God. And if you read the account of how they went into the promised land, they went through exactly the same thing Moses went through here before they could step in. They needed to be circumcised. You can read of it in Joshua 5. And this is a a principle that we still need to talk about today. And there may be different ways in which this might work out in our lives. Let me give you some examples. There is a pretty direct line from Moses' listeners um, to us today. And that direct line is that in the New Testament, the New Covenant does also have a God-given sign. It's not circumcision, but it's called baptism. And yet it is the case that there are many Christians today who think that God doesn't care if they've been baptized or not. What we're doing now surely matters more than whether I've done that. I guess Moses could have tried to make that argument. But it doesn't seem to be how God thought about things. Maybe t- today you're in that sort of situation. You want to press on and do great things for God, but there are basic things He's commanded you to do, and frankly, you just won't do them. And God's servant needs to take God at His word, all of His word. Imagine Christian parents who are unhappy about the children's work in their church. It's not doing enough, it's not relevant enough, and our kids don't seem to know enough. And yet those same parents aren't doing anything at home to teach their children about Jesus. They're not taking any occasion to open the Bible with them. And even though their criticisms of the church might be right, There's actually a more fundamental thing that God has called them to do. What right do I have to expect church programs to be fruitful if I'm not taking my responsibilities seriously? There's not one of us that doesn't tremble at this kind of message though, right? At some level, that kind of inconsistency lives inside all of us. And though that's not an excuse for knowingly allowing the consistency to remain, it does force us to see that on our own, we could actually never be pure enough, never be true enough to be right with God. We need a deliverer, one who is perfectly obedient to God's Word. And not even Moses was that. The same problem will come up later in his life. But thankfully, the Bible tells us that there is such a deliverer. In the book of Isaiah, we're introduced 
to God's servant, the promised deliverer who will rescue God's people from their sins. And in Isaiah 50, we're allowed to hear something of the servant's relationship with God, and specifically his relationship to the Word of God. Listen to this. Isaiah 50, verse 4. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. And what would that mean for this servant? Next verse says this. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. These are the words of Jesus that come to us through the prophet Isaiah. Jesus Christ is the true deliverer, the perfect hearer and doer of God's words. He has lived the perfect life that we have not and cannot live. And such is his obedience to the Word of God that he would lay down that perfect life in the place of sinners like you and me, so that the penalty that our imperfect sinful life deserves, he would endure on our behalf. We're being pointed to the need for a true deliverer, and there is only one. The best of men and women will fail you. They will fail themselves. But as we see that, it should produce in us this yearning for one who can live up to all that is needed. And Jesus Christ has come, and He's come to offer this to you, forgiveness, cleansing, to be brought into the family of God, to be able to say in the same sort of language that would come to these Israelites in Exodus 4, you're a child of God because you belong to Jesus Christ. And He's the only one able to do that the only one who has lived a perfectly obedient life to God's Word and has laid down that life in the place of sinners so that whoever will come will find forgiveness and eternal life. Have you found that? Because you see, this is the message of the Word of God that comes to you today, and it is the first and most important message you'll hear in your life. And we don't get to be selective about what we do with that. Oh, there are many people who want to have some of the the trappings of what it is to be part of a church community, whether that's friendships or, or, or even just a routine to your week. But if we have those things and we don't have Jesus, we're being selective in the most self-destructive way imaginable. We need Christ There is no church without Christ. It's His church. Let me point you to Him today 
because he's ready to receive you. Well, just as we close, there's, there's one more thing I want to point out that Moses is equipped with here. It pops up in verse 20, and in fact, if you have a Bible in your hands, it's in verse 17 as well. The last thing God says to him at the burning bush in verse 17 of chapter 4, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And then in verse 20, we're told, after Moses has put his family on the donkey, they head back to Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The staff of God. It's funny, you can, you, can, you can chart the progress of the staff in chapter 4. It doesn't start off as the staff of God. It starts off as the walking stick of Moses. God simply says, what's that in your hand? And it's his staff. And God says, well, throw it down, and it turns into a snake or a serpent or maybe even a crocodile, but we'll come on to that in future weeks. And uh, here it is this, this sign, this evidence of God's power that is at work in what He's doing, right? And this simple walking stick now has a new designation. Now it's the staff of God. You see, this simple stick accompanied with the Word of God, accompanied with the promises of God, is so much more. And this last bit of equipping is that God's servant needs to be reminded of God's power. God's servant needs to be reminded of God's power. Moses was to carry with him this testimony of God's promise to him, a physical sign that represented God's promise to rescue his people. And we should be mighty thankful that God understands that this is exactly the sort of thing that we need. This is the sort of thing that we need. And that even for us, God has given us signs to confirm our faith, and to confirm our confidence in the Word of God. And here's the beauty of it. They're very ordinary things. Uh, one is baptism. And so, on the day that we have a baptism here, underneath my feet right now, we have a, uh, a tank that we fill with water. And uh, at one point in the day, it's uh, Scottish water's water. But then accompanied with the Word of God, it's God's water. And it's not that it turns into anything miraculous, but it becomes to us a confirming sign. And dramatically, the old, as, as someone is submerged under the water, the old life is dead and buried. And as they're raised out of the water, a resurrection takes place and add into that the imagery of cleansing, and there you have the gospel on display in this simple water. There's another sign God's given to us, and that are the, that those are the symbols that we use in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be um, remembering in a few moments. And the same thing applies here. 
Um, at the start of the day, I think I've got this right, at the start of the day, it was Welch's grape juice. At the start of the day, it may even have been Tesco's bread. But taking the promises of God, taking the Word of God that accompany these signs, they become so much more. They become Christ's body and blood, not because anything changes in them, but because they become potent reminders of the promise of God that comes to us, and they lift us up to where Jesus is spiritually. And oh, we should be thankful that God knows how much we need these things, because we need to be reminded of the power of God, the power of God's Word, the sureness of His promises. We're pointed again to the death of Jesus and all of the promises that come to us from there to us. So, here in Exodus 4, God equips God's servant with the Word of God, with the lesson that the God's servant needs to take God at His Word and all of His Word, and with the reminders of God's power. All of this should create in us this longing to push on in the story to where God's deliverer comes. And it is my pleasure to be able to say today categorically, He has come. And in fact, He is here. And He's calling you to come to Him. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank You that all of Scripture points us to Him. Sometimes we see Him in the shadows. Sometimes we see the need of Him. But we thank You that the great crescendo that builds up in Scripture is to lead us to hear and to see Jesus Christ clearly. And so we pray, Father, You would help us to see Him today, the One who is the perfect hearer and perfect doer of Your Word, and more than that, the perfect hearer and doer of Your Word on our behalf. Oh, I pray that You would deepen our trust in Jesus, and if anyone here is yet to place faith in Him, Lord, that You would that you would draw that individual to Christ right now. And Lord, for, for those of us who know Jesus, we pray that we too would be constantly equipped by your Word. Lord, that you would give us a hunger for it. And Lord, that we would seek to hear Jesus' words, that we might be faithful to Him in this generation. So, Father, prepare our hearts as we, as we seek to be prepared, Lord, to remember the Lord Jesus in bread and wine now. In His name we ask. Amen. And now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, Amen. Amen.